Some of you have asked how you can help us. While most of us would say, we want wine. <sighs> Italia Wine Podcast is a publicly funded, sponsor-driven enterprise that needs the moolah. You can donate through Patreon or GoFundMe by heading to italianwinepodcast.com. We would appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Welcome to Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. I'm delighted to announce an important collaboration with Academy de Van Library, one of the world's most important wine book publishers, whose authors are amongst the most influential and entertaining in the world of wine writing today. These are writers who I've long admired, so it will be fascinating to chat with them and hear their stories. I hope you will join Welcome to Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today I'm delighted to introduce a new series in collaboration with Academy de Van Library, one of the world's leading wine book publishers. My guest today is one of my favorite wine communicators, writer, multi-award winning author, actor, broadcaster, television personality, sometimes opera singer. It can only be the inimitable Oz Clark. Oz, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be my guest today. Hi, Mark. It's lovely to talk to you again. We've known each other for a while. Yes, it goes back a long time, Oz. How are you today? You're managing to keep warm in this freezing cold snap. Honestly, barely. Our government at the moment tells us to turn all the gas off. We turned half the gas off in our house. We turned half the radiators off. And about two days ago, I just thought... I am freezing. I've got four layers on. I'm freezing. And I'm sorry, government, I've turned my radiators on again. Yeah, us too. It, it's, it's really cold. I guess one way of keeping warm is snuggling up with a favorite wine or two. Now, stop tempting me. It's not quite <laughs> the right time of day yet. No, not quite. Oz, I'm holding in my hand a beautiful edition of your book, Oz Clark on Wine, your global wine companion, published by Academy Devan Library in 2021. This book takes a reader on a journey all around the world of wine. In fact, it's around your world of wine. It's very much a personal memoir as well as a deeply informative wine book that encapsulates your encyclopedic knowledge. Tell us about it. Well, I think you picked up the point there that it's not the world of wine. It's my world of wine. And there are bits missing. And and I said early on in the book, I said, hey, look, if I, if I find it boring... Uh, or if I don't understand it, what's the point of me writing about it? So there are there are parts of, of the world that just don't get much coverage because I don't personally know about them or the wines have not meant anything to me. And uh, it's not really a memoir. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. It's actually it's certainly not a memoir because, hey, if it was a memoir or a biography, I'd have to I'd have to spill the dirt on all my friends. <laughs> and Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth reading. And I don't know. I've, I've, I've often thought several times people say, hey, you've got to write a biography, got to write a biography. And I just thought, I can't do that. Because the only way to make it good is to tell all the stories that, that your friends knew that you would be confidential about and wouldn't, wouldn't spill. But I have put, I mean, I start, I start when I was three, the, the book starts. I think the first line is something like, I started drinking when I was three. And so it is, it takes you on a journey, but it's, it's, I just 
I bring bits of my life in because it's more interesting, I think, if you're telling a story. If I've got to talk about Bordeaux or Burgundy or, or Chianti or, or Rioja, well, give me a bit of a story and I can draw the readers in. If I've just got to tell them there's five different grape varieties and the, and the, the thing's got to be aged in an oak barrel for a year and it's got to be 13.5% alcohol, they, people have left. They, they've, gone to, they've gone back to something more interesting before I've even finished the first page. So right the way through, I try to actually, I try to actually make it as amusing and as interesting and when I think it's important, as informative as possible. And sometimes I get all poetic and sometimes I get a bit scabrous and ribald. Uh, I certainly uh, like to, you know, take the more humorous side whenever I can. And I'm like, you know, there's there's not nearly enough humor in, in, in wine. We That's true. This wonderful liquid that makes us all happy and laugh and joke and we feel as witty as we've ever felt and all that kind of stuff. Why is it that so much of what we end up writing about this is so boring? And I've really, I've said to myself, at the end of every page, the reader has to want to turn that page because there's a story being told. And the story is wine as it was. I, I go back as, as long as wine is. And it's wine as it was, it's wine as it is now. And I also continually try to bring in wine as it's going to be. Because uh, the wine that people are going to be drinking in 20 years' time is really unlikely to be anything like what we're drinking now. And I want people to, to know about why. I want people to know that global warming has been... We've been banging on about global warming for 30 years. And now at last... People are saying, oh, my God, the world's getting warmer. And we say, hey, we were talking about that in the 1990s. People like Miguel Torres, people like Angelo Gaia, people like Piero Antinori, they knew all about global warming happening. They were aware of it. They were ready. Uh, but most of the world hasn't been. And that suddenly the world is actually tearing away like mad, saying, oh, my God, we must do something about this. And one wants to say, fellas, Miguel Torres has been doing something about this for 30 years. Why weren't you listening? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think if you're a wine lover, you can't help but know that climate change is happening and happening fast because of the way wines that we've all been drinking for for 20, 30 years have, have evolved. You know, they're not going to be the same. People say, oh, you know, what What do you think about, let's say, modern Bordeaux? And I say, uh, some of it's excellent, some of it's overwrought, uh, but it's certainly nothing like Bordeaux that I was brought up on. And I don't think that sure. you occasionally find a year like 20, 2017 or 2013 or possibly 2021, you say, hey, is this actually going to be a bit more like the old-fashioned Bordeaux that, that I used to mm, That leaner style. Yeah. But it isn't really because because that that's a modern version of a really difficult year as against an old version of a really good year. And, and they may end up with similar amounts of heat being generated, but the poor old vine uh, had a much tougher time in, 19, in, in 2021 or 2017 or 2013 than it did in, say, 1985 or 1988. Um, and it's not going to be the same. Sometimes it's better. I mean, I think that Italy has benefited enormously uh, from the change in in temperature and, and atmosphere, but also the change in people's minds, it, and and Bordeaux and Burgundy are, are, are struggling. I I think that somewhere like Chianti Classico um, is probably handling global warming better than than something somewhere like Saint Emilion. But I remember talking only a few weeks ago to Fontarutoli, and we were looking at their 
candy glass goes, which I thought were very good, but they're 14 and a half percent alcohol. And the winemaker said, look, I, I used to be able to make this at 12, 12 and a half, but I simply cannot make this Chianti Glasgow at 12 and a half anymore. The, the world, the atmosphere, the climate change just won't let you. So we have to find a different way of, of making uh, our favorite, our traditional areas. They have to find a different way of, 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 of expressing them, themselves. Uh, all kinds of new areas, and Italy is full of them. Luckily, Italy's got a damn great mountain range running from the Alps down to down to Sicily, which is exactly what you're going to need in the next 20 or 30 years. But also, I think that those of us who've been around a while, um, and I try to keep my I try to keep my feet one 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 foot in the old world uh, or the, the old timers world, and one foot absolutely in uh, reaching out towards the future. Um, but I talk to I go out drinking with a bunch of people in the late 20s, early 30s, every month or two, just to, to keep myself um, alert as to what's going on. They don't particularly want those old flavors. And if you if you shove them a 30-year-old bottle of, of um, Bordeaux or a 30-year-old bottle of Barolo, they're not terribly impressed. They like the stuff that's five years old, and they like the stuff that's 14% alcohol. Um, and and it's interesting. I find quite a lot of them when I say, "Well, are you going to age wine? You're going to put it down?" They say, "No, we don't need to. Just buy it when we want it." Even I say, even a even a, a Chianti Classico or a Barolo or a, or a, a Poyac, they say, "Yeah, things change." Uh, yeah, you know what's really interesting, Oz is yes, wines have changed as you've just been describing, but also wine drinkers have changed. That's right. You write in the you write in the book that in the 1960s. I think uh, you say that 5% of people drank wine in Britain. That's right. And wine has now become so popular, uh, you know, in, in part through many, many reasons. That's interesting to explore, but also through wine communication. I, I remember the, when wine came onto TV for the first time. I, what, what year was it that you began the food and drink program on BBC? When I started out, I was doing General Perron in Evita. <laughs> right. And it was, I, was, I was sort of moonlighting to try and get there. Luckily, they initially used to record it on Sundays, so I could do it. That would have been, I don't know, mid-80s. Yeah, yeah. I, Mid-80s, I should think. It, it was such a breath of fresh air, though, Oz. I think, you know, wine in the 70s into the 80s still had an elite cachet about it. And this is bringing wine in a way that people sitting in their living rooms could understand it. And even if they couldn't pick up all those flavors themselves or aromas, you know, it, it made them want to try. I don't think they were supposed to pick them all up. Uh, I was talking to Julie Goulden only yesterday, in fact, and we were talking about another, yet another plan to to sort of um, kidnap the British audience and, and take bring a bit of fun back onto the television screens. But we always do it by trying to give uh, good advice and by, by saying to ourselves, what do we think people will like to drink? One of the things I've always done is not say, I'm right, you must follow me this way. It's I always try to open my ears and, and heart and mind and say, I wonder what people really want, and I'll find the best way to lead them towards what they want. And I think 
that's that's maybe why the television shows worked so well, because we actually thought, hmm, for instance, in the 1980s, we had been starved of ripeness in, in Britain for a thousand years, and so much of the scrapings of the rotten barrels of Southern Europe turned up on our tables and with sort of fancy names pretending to be something worth drinking, and they weren't. Um, so that was when we discovered that that Australia and New Zealand and places like that actually had an entirely different view on on, on wine, which was it was supposed to be a decent drink. You could see all these sort of sort of traditional French people in their in their sort of old chateaus and and old manor houses, sort of saying a decent drink. Why is it supposed to be a decent drink? We, you just drink what we give you, and we were saying no, we don't. We don't have to drink what you give us. If you want to develop a wine drinking culture, you've got to look at the consumer and say what would they like, and I think we can make it for them. Now, you can make a Bordeaux attractive or you can make it unattractive. You can make a, a Chianti attractive or, or unattractive. The, the, the challenge was then to say, okay, we may have to, 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 to throw over quite a lot of the things that we did, often out of laziness or ignorance or lack of investment or, or just, just in, incompetence, um, but throw them over uh, and learn how to do it properly. And I think that even though I still get criticized, being, oh, God, you and your new world. And people, I've said, well, you're not listening to me because I talk far more about Europe now than I talk about the new world. But I think the, the effect that the new world has had on Europe has been massive. But then, of course, the effect that Europe has now had on the new world has been really important as well. It's this global village thing. At last, at last everyone's talking to each other. And when I started, they weren't. They just didn't want to listen to what other people had to say. Now they do. Well, I, I guess, you know, this evolution that you're talking about, this creation of a wine culture, uh, is so interesting here in Britain. But in other countries, the U.S., for example, which didn't have a wine-drinking culture, uh, you know, and it's evolved in great measure because of the new world. You know, you write that Australian wines are a rarity once here in Britain. Californian wines were difficult to get. Wines from New Zealand hardly existed. And we've seen this great growth throughout the world. And here in Britain, for example, our wine culture is based on the availability of wines from around the world. You don't get that in France or in Italy. You don't, but, uh, but you go into a supermarket now in, in France or Italy, um, and there's a, a range of wines which are going to be enjoyable, and quite a lot of those um, are, are going to be fairly cheap and juicy or crunchy uh, or refreshing, um, just the kind of thing that you take away the bottle, you, you, you switch off the screw cap if you're allowed to use a screw cap in your particular appellation or, or DOC, uh, and, and just pour a mug out of a nice, refreshing, tasty um, modern liquid. So, so it's, it's, it's quite easy to do. Uh, in in certainly in France, Germany, Austria, probably most parts of Italy. Although one of the lovely things about Italy, of course, is that whereas France has lost quite a lot of its rural culture, and it's been slightly McDonaldized, and 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 the the the, the loss of of bars and restaurants and cafes in rural France is really quite distressing. In Italy, I always find that each place I go to, I've Every time I go and sit somewhere, I think there's a chance today in Italy that I will actually be offered some kind of food that I haven't had before. 
or some kind of wine that I might not know existed. I was I was in, in Umbria a few years ago. I was actually down looking at Sagrantino to try and understand Sagrantino without having to book the dentist as soon as, soon as I got back home. <laughs> uh, and what was it? It was a, it was a trebi- I saw I sat in this cafe and I saw somebody having a little jug of, of a wine that was as thick and golden as olive oil and he was pouring it out into his glass. And I just said, to the waiter, I said, "What's that?" And he said, "Oh no, that's just don't worry, that's the local white." And I said, "But that's what I want." He was probably trying to sell me some Vermentino or something. I said, "No, no, I want that." And of course, I discovered it was a Trebbiano de a Spolentino. I just thought, and I tasted it, and I just thought, this is exactly the wine that I want to be drinking at this minute. It was the cheapest wine in the restaurant. It was open wine in the restaurant but i sat there with an enormous grin on my face and i just thought this is what can happen all over italy still um the sheer joy of of localness and uh, in england now we have a massive revival of interest in localness and it's really important because the, the the mess of brexit the, the chaos and crisis of COVID, the, the political sort of, I don't know what you call it, stagnation or, or, or let's, put, let's use the word chaos twice, the chaos, political chaos. I think it's put a lot of British people in, in, into the mood when they say we've actually got to look after ourselves and look after our own. And so people are beginning more and more to say, I will support my local brewery. I will support my local butcher or greengrocer or baker. And indeed, obviously, nowadays in Britain, I will support my own vineyard. But local has become really very important in in Britain. And of course, local has never not been important in, in Italy. Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. And that's absolutely true. You can be in one village from another and the wines and foods are not completely different, but personal and unique to that area. And you can be, in terms of, you know, how to make the local pasta sauce, well, you can be in one household. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it'll be different to the next household and be different to the next household. And you think, hang on, this is just a fairly simple local pasta sauce, all different. Because yeah, both delicious, but different. Making them. It gets as local as that in Italy, which is one of the absolute delights of Italy. Yes, absolutely. Now, Oz Clark on wine divides into sections, and one of the most important is wine grapes, wine styles. And we're discussing Italian grapes now. But do you think approaching wine by grape variety is easier and more helpful for the wine drinker than, say, linking to place, sort of varietal versus terroir-driven approach? Because places can be difficult. I think that it's uh, places uh, quite often where you you progress to. I think that the simplest way of explaining wine to people who are new to wine and, in, and but keen to learn is explaining the different grape varieties. I mean, it is just like taking a, 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 a bunch of apples, taking a Cox and a Granny Smith and a Bramley and a, a Golden Delicious, if you can bear to put one of those in your mouth, and saying, okay, bite into each of these four. And anybody who can tell the difference between a banana and a haddock can tell you the difference between those apples. 
And then you say, well, this is the same with grape varieties. Look at the, look at the Granny Smith. There's your, there's your, that sharp, crisp, green acid attack. That's what you should be getting from Sauvignon. Sauvignon's a green grape. Look for that greenness. And then you might take, I don't know, the, the, the golden delicious and talk about Chardonnay, softer, rounder, gentler, and a little bit more golden in its style. And with, with red grapes, you, you take something simple like Merlot and Cabernet. Well, they're next to each other, and you might think, oh, that'll be complicated. Well, it isn't, because the Merlot should be the one which is mellow if it's not overripened to, to within an inch of its life uh, and full of extractive tannins. But Merlot should be soft and slightly juicy, slightly lush in your mouth, and Cabernet should definitely have a little attack on your mouth. You should feel it on your tongue. You should feel that tannin on the side of your cheeks. And you, you can then say, okay, now let's have four glasses of wine from these and, and talk our way through them. And Merlot, Cabernet, Chardonnay, Sauvignon, for instance, everybody will get it. If you want to make it even easier, put Pinot Noir in instead of Merlot. Everyone will get it. And I think that then you can start talking to people about what they like best. And if they like Pinot Noir best, you say, okay, so you like that lighter style. Excellent. Now, Pinot Noir comes from France, but it also comes from Italy. It also comes from Chile, comes from Argentina, comes from New Zealand, comes from South Africa. So one, one thing you can say to them is, why don't you just, over the next month or so, get Pinot Noirs from each of those different countries, stay with the same grape and get from different countries, see the differences. And if then one particular country, like, I don't know, New Zealand, um, really excites you more than the others, it might be time to start moving on to a place. And then why don't you go to New Zealand and say, right, if, if I like New Zealand Pinot Noir, I'll try New Zealand Merlot or Syrah, and then maybe I'll try New Zealand Sauvignon and Chardonnay. Suddenly you think, okay, I've got quite a feeling about New Zealand now. Uh, I started with trying to get a feeling about the grapes. I often say that you only need about 12 words to know more about wine than our parents ever knew. And that's like six grapes, let's say, Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Riesling if you want, um, Shiraz, Syrah, um, Cabernet, well, put in Pinot Noir because it's there. I mean, I'm using the French grapes here, Mark, because of course those are the ones that are spread around the world much more than any others. You've got six grapes there, and then you, what about six countries? You've got France and New Zealand and Chile and Australia and, I don't know, South Africa or Argentina, or if you want to put Spain in there, you could, but it's not. you're not going to be helped very much with French grapes there. You could put Italy there, but again, you're not going to be helped with very much French grapes. But if you have six countries and six grapes, you've got a whole lifetime of, of uh, this is if you're not a complete wine freak who wanders around thinking about wine all day long, but an ordinary person who's got other things to do but likes wine. Six wine grapes in six countries. You've actually got enough to interest you for the next 20 or 30 years. Absolutely. And, and I think you're right. Uh, that varietal approach does make wine accessible. On the other hand, do you think there's a danger of, of there's so many hundreds and even thousands of native grape varieties with names people have never heard of. And by reducing wine to a smaller palate, 
we're missing out on a host of pleasures. And that, of course, is where Italy, uh, our love of Italian wine comes back, because there's so many discoveries still to be made. That's absolutely right. Now, some people who um, are Italophiles uh, won't have a problem with that. They will leap into Italy and, and enthusiastically gorge themselves on everything that Italy has to offer. But most people will probably just stay with half a dozen great varieties that they know. And Italy might well be caught up by saying this is the world of Pinot Grigio or this is the world of Prosecco. People, those two wines make people perfectly happy. Um, and the, the majority of the people who drink those two wines may never bother to move on. But I think that um, when, when we start getting A into place, uh, and Italy is, is, is increasingly a place of villages and vineyards, and it never used to be. It used to be a place of broad, broad swathes. But B, it's a place, of course, with absolutely hundreds of grape varieties um, that people never knew existed. Uh, the locals may have known existed, but probably they just all went into, into a blend in the co-op, and probably they're still in the ground because you, people can't afford to rip them up and, and, and plant Sangiovese. But I was just thinking only... This morning, I was thinking about, for, for some reason, I came up, I was thinking about uh, Timorasso, which nobody had heard of a few years ago. I was I was thinking about Norella Mascalesi, which, of course, everyone now knows, but it wasn't well known in, in, in not long ago. I, w I was thinking about Nocera, that, that, um, that great, the planeta of... Um, yes, from Messina. Yeah. And then I was thinking about Caricante, you know, and Frappato. Uh, who, who knew about those five or ten years ago? I mean, Italophiles, I'm sure, may have done. But now you can find a Caricante in something like a Tesco, probably. You can find something like a, um, a Frappato at somewhere like, you know, Lathwaite's uh, Direct Wine. These, they're coming onto, uh, onto our, um, our market uh, and as attractive, affordable, modern wines, but with a proper sense of place. I mean, the frappato, which I've just tried that frappato, which, uh, which uh, comes from, uh, from Sicily, and you, you just think this genuinely, in its crunchiness and that slightly rocky taste that it has, you think this genuinely isn't a Tuscan wine, this genuinely isn't a, a Piedmont wine. And though, just to say it's not Tuscan or Piedmont, you see, Italophiles will say, don't be ridiculous, of course it's not. But most of the world are not Italophiles. Most of the world um, still find Italian wines a little bit confusing if they're not Pinot Grigio and Prosecco. But Italy has got a most fabulous opportunity now um, because it has so many great varieties which have been coming out of the woodwork in the last 10 years or so. I mean, looking at someone like Campania, for instance, the, the way that people now, after 10 years of, of hard work, they're beginning to get the message about Fiano, or they're beginning to understand Falangina. These are, these are the kind of great varieties that 10 years ago, no one would have ever heard of. I mean, things like Timorasso and Nocera and things, they're, gonna, they're still a little bit down the track, and there aren't, aren't even very many of them. And funnily enough, this is, I was talking to Angelo Gaia quite a, a few years ago, if I can name drop for a moment, and we were talking about the future of Italy, and he, one of the things he said, he said, in, at least in the short to medium term, he said, the future of Italy is white wine, not red wine. And I thought that's absolutely fascinating because white grapes are, are some of the ones that seem to be showing, to everyone's surprise, that they're almost better suited to coping with global warming than red grapes are. We find this in Greece. 
We find this in Croatia. We find this in quite a lot in Spain. Uh, we definitely find a lot in, in, in Italy. The, the white grapes are southern France as well. The whole range of southern French wines around the around the around the Mediterranean, um, but the, the the white grapes and I, it may be that these are these are grapes which are just literally thrown into the vat because I do remember when I used to go to Italy in the old days and talk to winemakers. Very few winemakers even wanted to admit they made white wine. They basically seemed to think that some kind of white liquid to go with the frito misto before they moved on to something proper. In fact, some of those white wines were made like red wines. Uh, Vernaccio di San Gimignano used to be a skin contact white made in wooden barrels, I remember. And now we're coming back to that. That's interesting too, Oz, because we're talking about great varieties that in many cases go back thousands of years, but which are being rediscovered. And also wine making techniques, uh, you know, we're returning to the past, even to antiquity, to fermentation in terracotta amphora, for example. Which, of course, Italy has been in the forefront um, up in Friuli, although the Slovenians and the Croatians might say, hey, we were there, we were there at the same time. But in, in terms of bringing those ancient Mesopotamian ideas um, about wine back to the sort of the, the, the core of European winemaking. Well, Italy, Italy, something like Friuli is being done, doing that as long as I can remember. Yeah, with Oscar Gravner. I, I, I think they are, I think they're interesting. I think some of them are delicious. I think some of them are, are, are simply academic in their, their interest. But I do think that the fact that those grapes have been growing for a couple of thousand years means that they've seen it all before. And I think that they will find it easier to um, react to the amazing challenges um, of, of climate change, which obviously have opportunities as well as being challenges. I think they'll find it easier to react than things like the maritime grapes, like Cabernet Sauvignon and things like uh, Merlot, which have not really seen it all before. They've been, in a way, they've been, they've been cosseted out on the, on the Atlantic coast. And I think that they are going to struggle more than dozens and dozens of great varieties that we're only just about to learn about from somewhere like Italy. And it's one of the most exciting things that we're going to have in the next 10 to 20 years is what's going to come out of places like Greece, places like Italy, places like Spain, which have got so many grape varieties that have been largely forgotten. But you only need only a couple of vines and you can propagate all kinds of stuff, as they're finding in places like Rioja at the moment, coming up with all kinds of stuff that was stuck up in the hills. Nobody knew what it was. They're finding out what it is, and they're saying, hey, another brilliant example to try and help Tempranillo cope with climate change. Sure. Yeah, and they're doing that in Bordeaux, aren't they? Bringing in new grape varieties out of necessity, yeah. It's very interesting. Bernard Magres, who's a, a strange fellow um, at La Tour Carne, um, he's just got this, which is a class growth, fourth growth, class growth in New York Medoc. He's got a part of his vineyard, which is actually putting all kinds of warmer variety, uh, grape varieties in. And he's using sort of electrical currents and things to try and actually find what will work in Bordeaux in 2050. It's a, it's a fascinating idea. And, and certainly, uh, Bordeaux has now admitted half a dozen grape varieties. Um, and I'm sure they'll admit half a dozen more because some of these won't work. But when you see things like Tariga Nacional being formally yes, admitted into the Bordeaux world, you, you have to say, 
things are changing. Champagne, I was just in Champagne last week, uh, and they have now uh, uh, formally allowed one of the one of the hybrid peewee wines, one of those sort of created grape varieties. They've formally allowed it to be planted in Champagne. Incredible! Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's happening. Yeah, it's happening. We have to embrace it, Mark. And are you embracing it? Are you hopeful for the future? I am very hopeful for the future because I actually I, I think that um, I think that our ability to keep global warming to one point five degrees is is probably impossible, um, which may mean that we at last start taking uh, how to deal with more heat a bit more seriously. At the same time, I'm sure we all have to try and make that attempt to reduce emissions all around the world. But we can, at the same time, for things like our wine world, we have to start uh, also working out how to deal with the extra heat. And I think that that in the next 10 years or so, we're going to find some remarkable efforts being made around the world, and they're going to produce remarkable wines. Well, that's certainly something to look forward to, a good thing that can come out of this uh, tragedy we're seeing happening all around us, which sometimes we feel quite helpless about. English sparkling wines, Mark. I mean, where would they be without global warming? It's a, that's a silver lining. Absolutely. Look how that's changed in, in just 20 years. Oz, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you here today. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Next time we meet, I'd really like to do that over a glass of wine or two. It's ridiculous. We're not, uh, we are not. haven't got a bottle open, Mark. It's, this is not the kind of people we are. It's not right, is it? No. It's not right. <laughs> well, you're down in Topcham. I get down at Devon now and then. Yes, you were here for the launch of the um, Shipton Barton, the Sharpham Estate. The, the Sharpham Estate moved to Sandridge Barton. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And things like I quite often try and get down to the West of England food and drink and stuff like that. I love the West of England. Well, I'll see you next time you're down. But uh, I hope you have a good Christmas and look forward to meeting soon. And to you, Mark. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin.